Around the Rings Roundtable is in session. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm Ed Hula. Today, the first convocation of what we hope will become a regular feature each month in our series of podcasts, a Reporters Roundtable. We'll have a panel of top experts and specialists from the world of Olympic journalism gather around our virtual roundtable to share their insights and observations about what's happening in the world of the Olympics. We're at a most challenging time for the games in the Olympic movement. The threat of the coronavirus has laid waste to the season of competition across a whole range of Olympic sports, and the knock-on effect has led to the unheard of postponement of the Tokyo Olympics by one year, and that in itself has created its own tidal wave of change. With us on this edition is Steve Wilson, noted Olympic beat reporter for more than 20 years with Associated Press as European editor. He now writes occasionally for Around the Rings and other publications, and he joins us from London. In Tokyo is Shin Kobayashi, Deputy Managing Director of the Olympic and Paralympic News Office for Kyoto News, himself a 20-year veteran of the Olympic beat with many years residing in London. And our third panelist is a distinguished broadcast reporter, Donna Deverona, recognized for being a pioneer sports reporter. She became famous as a teenager, setting world records in swimming and then winning two gold medals in swimming at the Tokyo Olympics. Today, she's with us from Florida, and that's the Tokyo Olympics of 1964, by the way. She is our true expert on the Tokyo Olympics, and uh, we'll be talking with her about that. Thanks to all of you for being with us today. First, uh, a quick take from each of you on the Tokyo postponement, clearly the, the big news story of the year. <laughs> so far for the Olympics. What does it mean for Tokyo and its people, for athletes, for broadcasters, IOC and related organizations? Uh, Shin Kobayashi, what is the mood right now uh, in, in Tokyo following the declaration of this postponement? So close, so close, just months away from when the games were supposed to begin. Yes, hi Ed. Um... Obviously, it was a big news in the end of March when the postponement was decided. Uh, now, well, because of this situation with uh, coronavirus, we can't really see what the Tokyo 2020 is doing. Um, I'm quite sure they are doing a lot of work to make all the rearrangement of, of the preparation of the games, like the venues and the accommodation and the um, village and transportation, security, volunteers. I'm quite sure a lot of things are going on, but at the moment, uh, we don't really see much of what they're doing. And, uh, and oh, of course, the people's attentions are geared toward the situation with the virus and the, everybody's living. Uh, so at the moment, Olympics is a bit quiet. And in terms of sports, uh, people are more talking about when the baseball season will start or the football JD uh, soccer season will start. And also a uh, big event in summer, the Japanese high school baseball tournament has been canceled and uh, that made a big headline. And of course, um, now local prefecture, local governments are trying to find some way to um, let the play, you know, the high school kids play baseball somewhere, even though there's no national tournament. 
Um, so, yes, so the, the Olympic itself is not making a big headline at the moment. Now, for athletes, Donna Deverona, what kind of impact, what kind of disruption does it pose to be training for the Olympics, getting to your peak just about at this time, and having the rug, if you will, pulled out from under your feet and be told you're going to come back next year to compete in the Games? Well, I think even next year is a target they're thinking about and saying, will it really happen? Because everybody also feels so untethered and everything's so uncertain. And there was that period with the shut-ins that uh, swimmers, for instance, couldn't find water. I mean, some could if they live in a, a higher economic level where they can borrow somebody's backyard pool like Katie Ledecky. Uh, some of them are swimming out in lakes or oceans. Uh, but also training alone. Uh, I know I tried to train alone uh, after the 1960 Olympics with my father coaching me, and I really just couldn't keep up with everyone because you've got to have somebody in the pool to push you, a team to inspire you. And then as it plays out around the world, you can see, you know, it depends on what country you're from, what sport you're in. And, and if you can keep yourself sharp and in shape, then there's other ones that have been offered jobs. You know, they've, they've put off uh, their professions uh, and some of them are just going to have to say, no, we can't, we can't, uh, we can't go for Tokyo because it's still uncertain. And then of course there's the broadcasters that, um, you know, have to decide, are they going to uh, continue to focus on the games when they're trying to manage a whole other sports complement and coverage uh, are they going to send people to Tokyo when is the cutoff date when they have to decide when they bring their army of broadcasters and behind the scenes uh, supporters to Tokyo uh, so this is such a moving target and I it's you know as we all know nothing's changed until we find a vaccine or a, or a cure on the other end we are finding in the United States that there are some uh, remedies that are working uh, when people get the virus. So we're having fewer deaths, but still, until there's a, a global um, uh, virus where we, we can send out the, the medicine to everyone and, and make an even playing field, I think we're all living with uncertainty. And uncertainty still rules at the IOC, Steve Wilson. Don't you think they're still are still not certain that the Olympics are going to take place in July 2021 as they've been postponed. Um, a lot still has to happen for the IOC to be fully confident about whether the games will be able to come to fruition. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, there's still a little bit of breathing room left, uh, so to speak. I mean, we got 14 months until the, the rescheduled games would take place. But yeah, I mean, the IC has, has has got a lot on its plate. Obviously, you know, it has to try to reschedule all the all the 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 things that need to be in place. The the big puzzle that uh, Thomas Bach talks about all the time for for doing the games a year later. You know, that involves making sure that the venues are available again, that the competition schedule can be reorganized along the same uh, way as before, and managing the extra costs of, uh, with Tokyo and who's going to pay for what, and uh, making sure that international federations uh, can can stay afloat without the Olympic revenues. That's that's the, the easy part, so to speak. The, the hard part may be just in the tough decisions they're going to need to make in the coming months about whether these games can go ahead or not. Because, as Donna mentioned, you know we still don't have a vaccine. 
there's still uh, high uh, cases of, 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 the, of the virus in Latin America and the US um, and Brazil, major countries, Russia. Uh, will, will the COVID be uh, controlled in time to ensure that athletes from those countries can, can safely travel and compete? So, um, and I think, uh, you know, we've talked about this, the date of October has been mentioned uh, by John Coates and others as being a crucial, crucial month. Uh, and that they haven't said necessarily they, they need to, that's a drop dead date for deciding whether the games are going ahead or not, but it's obviously in their mind that, that uh, they need to know pretty well in October that they're going to be able to do it or, or not. And, um, you know, they had, they were able to wait until the last moment uh, this year uh, in, in, uh, to postpone, but I don't think they'll have that much time uh, next year to decide because the games will be uh, organized in a different way. Uh, if they do go ahead, we may have to have uh, some quarantine for athletes. You may need to have uh, restrictions on fans, all these type of changes will need to be put into effect uh, uh, with plenty of time in advance. So I think a decision on on going ahead with the games will be made a lot sooner than it was this year around. So yes, uh, a lot on the IOC's plate in the coming weeks and months. And Donna, you're hearing that there may be even an earlier, Donna, you're hearing there may be even an earlier call on the part of broadcasters, perhaps that uh, a cancellation takes place. That's right. I've heard a uh, rumor that um, in Europe they're considering they're looking at at, at August, um, I, you know, because again it's transporting everyone. And then if then if you look you look at what's going on in the economies around the world, um, we don't know with everybody going back out on the street if there's, there's going to be another spike in the virus. Uh, and part of what an Olympic committee or Olympic organizing committee depends on is the revenue from spectators. Who's, who's going to get on those planes? Usually it's a more affluent group. The U S usually sends a lot of people. People don't want to travel now. You know, people are driving miles, thousands of miles to get to places because they don't want to get on planes. Uh, so again, uh, I think that it's, it's, uh, they may have to pull the trigger sooner. Uh, I hope not. You know, I, I hope not. And I hope that, Perhaps the federations are looking at an idea. I, and maybe this is an off-the-wall idea, but uh, since world championships are being scheduled a little bit later, perhaps uh, the next world championships can offer two awards for uh, for an Olympic uh, recognition and for uh, a world championship. And I would hope that the Olympic community and looking for 2020 now with Bach looking toward the future, there should be another 2020 look on how, and I've always felt this, how these federations can go back to Olympic host cities and use those venues. Because in Tokyo, those venues are incredible. And they were in 1964 when I competed. They were state of the art. They were first class. And uh, I think we have to reward the, um, the Japanese community some way down the future to bring big events there uh, when somehow we find a vaccine and people can start traveling and living in a new world. Uh, Shin, is there any impatience on the part of people in Tokyo, just regular people about this delay and the extra cost that it's going to impose upon uh, Tokyo metropolitan government, the, the national government, the, the, the hassle of another year's wait for, for the Olympics, uh, People were supposedly supporting the 
uh, Tokyo Olympics across Japan, but is that support going to erode from this difficulty? Well, uh, the focus is not really yet on the financial aspect. Um, now the postponement came and now like two months has passed and um, uh, we are not quite sure how the situation will go. And, and uh, now people have certain doubt of can we really have the games here in Tokyo next year. Um, so at the moment, um, I wouldn't say it's impatience, but uh, kind of a kind of a doubt or a fear of uh, games being totally cancelled is there. But once I think the preparations, you know, rearrangement are on the way, and um, you started to know what the figure, what the amount of the cost would be like, uh, I think that would might be a big debate on who's paying it and uh, how we pay it. Mm -hmm. um, it is said, we, we don't know yet. I mean, for instance, like um, accommodation, how, many, how much cancellation fees the organizing committee have to, have to, has to pay or all the rearrangement of the transportation, the buses that they, thousands of buses they hired and also the security personnel and so on. Um, like um, the Tokyo big site, which is going to be the um, NPC and IBC, um, they were booked, you know, after the games already. And uh, well, Tokyo Metropolitan Government is going to get it back, but I'm quite sure they have to to pay a huge um, compensation to the people who already booked for it. And also, like IBC, uh, all the TV studios and all the equipments all already brought in and in place. So they decided um, to have it, you know, taken away and uh, use it for another thing until the games. Uh, instead, they just decided to keep it. So they're going to pay a year of uh, rent without using it at all. So when those things accumulate, we don't know what the extra cost would be to, to have the games a year from now. And uh, there's a lot of guesses, like it could be three billion dollars to six billion US dollars. And uh, when people's attention come to those figured money, um, there's a, you know, there's a danger that, you know, it will go backlash to the Olympics or the IOC or the games. Um, so we don't really know yet. And uh, it's not really right in front of us yet. Mm -hmm. There's so much uncertainty, so much uncertainty. Yeah. Um, what, what, is the, what is the situation with coronavirus right now in, in Japan? Um, the emergency, state of emergency has been lifted. Um, mm -hmm. is, is the virus under control in Tokyo? Is that, is that a worry of organizers right now? Is that a, uh, is that a threat? Well, it's hard to say if it's uh, you know contained yet, but um, the situation is uh, getting better. It's improved a lot. Uh, the state of emergency was lifted in most of part of the country on the 25th of uh, May, 
um, that was excluding some prefectures, including Tokyo, um, Chiba, Kanagawa, you know, Tokyo metropolitan area and also Hokkaido. Um, but that was all lifted eventually. And um, I think um, now Tokyo, uh, you know, metropolitan government is um, setting their own, you know, process of uh, lifting all the restrictions. And since yesterday, 1st of June, uh, Tokyo went into step two, the phase two, where all the theaters or the movie theaters and the sport gyms and uh, all the schools are now uh, operating as normal. And in probably two weeks time, um, there will be no restriction at all. So. I would say uh, the things are moving toward the right direction. And uh, when the summer comes, I think uh, the threat will kind of, you know, uh, be not imminent as, as it used to be. But of course, there is all the, always the fear of the second wave or the third wave, as well as uh, if you see what is happening around the world, um, you know, it's not very optimistic situation in Southern hemisphere and uh, also some countries like Russia or, right. you know, um, the States as well. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's... And, the, and, and, the, and the way the virus uh, continues, as you say, in the Southern hemisphere, uh, Donna, athletes are still, still dealing with the... Uh, right. uh, uh, restrictions on their training, on their travel, and that sort of thing. Well, the, the thing is, it, and it's not only impacting athletes. I mean, people don't feel sorry for the U.S., but our government doesn't give support for our Olympic communities or federations. Uh, many of the federations have appealed to the government to get some kind of stipend to keep them operating. But, you know, we all depend on the feeder system, which is the IOC and the TV money and the sponsorship money that filters down. Um, I know uh, Suzanne Lyons and Sarah Hirschland, they, they made big cuts with our National Olympic Committee. Uh, they cut a lot of staff. Uh, Sarah Hirschland cut her salary. Um, I do think that, you know, given that it is nonprofit profit, that was probably the appropriate thing to do, especially for PR reasons. But uh, so you're finding that a lot of federations are really struggling. And then on top of that, we have all our issues of harassment and the court systems and everything that's going through, um, through, the, through our uh, community that's burdening um, our athletes and our, our leadership. We're looking for some new leadership, but uh, again, our, our government doesn't support the Olympic movement. And I'm sure at this time when there's so many small businesses that need stipends and need support that there's no sympathy for that. But uh, it's, it's a big hit. And of course, we have that big training center in Colorado Springs. I think everybody has to sit down at the drawing board and, and look to the future. I would like our uh, training center to open up to master's programs, uh, master coaches that come in and teach other coaches. We've never used it that way. Uh, we have a, a great cadre of, uh, you know, uh, uh, master athletes that have the uh, financial wherewithal to, to go to the training center and at the time off to learn in the future when this thing's resolved uh, to learn from the best. And we need to come up with a different structure. And I, 
And I'm sure that the membership of the IOC that's being cl closely held uh, dialogues have to think of a future uh, with the Olympic movement that's a little, that's different uh, because the burden on these cities like we're seeing with Japan is so huge. There's such a risk. I know ABC always took the risk because Rune Arledge believed in the Olympics, but as you know, after, um, after the last winter games that we covered in, uh, in, in uh, Calgary, that uh, Disney and ABC pulled out. They said, we're gonna go with ESPN and we're gonna play it safe. So I think everybody's questioning the, the risk it takes to, to support this movement. I love the movement. I think it's very healthy for the world, but I guess we have to find a different way for the future. Yeah, this is, this is jarring because there's been a, a certainty that the IOC the Olympic movement has depended upon with the games coming every four years, the routine of funding, of sponsorship, of renewal of broadcast rights. Uh, Steve, that seems to all be coming into question these days as a result of this, these parallel crises. Yeah, absolutely. Well, last, last week, as you know, um, uh, the IOC organized some calls uh, between President Bach and uh, the members themselves, a uh, series of calls just to update them on what's happening in terms of the Tokyo preparations. Um, so and they're going to be having these continual meetings uh, throughout the summer. They're going to have this, this online session, as you know, in July, uh, which, which would have been held in Tokyo. They're going to do an online uh, virtual session. And um, so they're keeping uh, a close watch on it. But, uh, you know, from what my understanding is uh, at the last uh, during those calls last week, they there was not a single mention of uh, the possibility of cancellation. It wasn't publicly discussed uh, uh, during those meetings. So even if it may be a potential uh, uh, outcome, that's not uh, it's not on the cards right now. So they're, they're, they're proceeding as if things are going ahead. But it's interesting that. Um, you know, in the context of the COVID situation that you know, Japan, uh, as Shin mentioned, uh, is coming out of, uh, you know, coming out of restrictions, uh, baseball is about to start up, uh, country seems to be back to some sort of normalcy. In fact, you know, Japan itself um, has really been virtually well, somewhat unscathed compared to many other countries uh, by the by, by this pandemic. Uh, I read uh, and Shin, you can tell me if this is right or wrong, that fewer than 900 deaths uh, in Japan uh, as a result of COVID, which is minuscule compared to, uh, you know, the U.S. and Great Britain and, and other countries. So there's that's one good sign that things, at least in Japan, are, you know, the, the virus is somewhat uh, under control. But, of course, it will depend on the rest of the world and the athletes being able to travel and come into uh, to a safe environment. And that's still to be determined. And of course, Ed, as you mentioned, uh, with the IOC, depending on I, the revenues from uh, organizing the games every four years, um, not only is this uh, postponement for Tokyo, uh, you know, causing um, a lot of a headache for everyone, is, you know, we can't forget that the Beijing Winter Games are five months later uh, uh, in in twenty in February of twenty twenty two. So that's going to cause a lot of challenges, uh, whatever happens, uh, to have the two successful games uh, so close together um, with potential issues still hanging uh, over those games uh, because of the virus. And so nothing, uh, nothing will come easy in the next, uh, in the next couple of years. And I think yeah, tough, deci and tough and decisions are going to be made about where they're going to need to maybe make some cutbacks and 
reductions in in in, in other in other uh, fields. And the IOC declared earlier this month a $850 million fund to help support NOCs, uh, federations, to help uh, Tokyo with the cost of the, the, the postponement. Um, that's that's got to hurt the budget of the IOC. And we're hearing about cutbacks at national Olympic committees around the world, at international federations, at national governing bodies. IOC might have to make some cuts at some point as well. Yeah, I mean, they. I, my understanding is that they're reviewing all their budgets, uh, department budgets, very carefully, very closely. Uh, they know that uh, they have to uh, tighten their belts, and there may be some uh, something, you know, the not the as uh, IOC likes to to often uh, refer to the must-haves and the likes and the nice-to-haves. Uh, so I think the the nice-to-haves, uh, you know, are not going to. Uh, make the cut in most cases, uh, not only at the games, but also maybe uh, internally as well at, uh, within, within, within the building. And, and how seriously do you think the, the look, the way the games are conducted might have to change um, as a result of coronavirus countermeasures? Uh, Donna, the, the Olympic Village with its close quarters, the way athletes transported together, all of that has to change if you follow the the guidelines that are being promulgated today. Well, let's assume that uh, they find a way uh, to quarantine athletes that make their National Olympic Committee in home. Um, I think it's just to you know, depend on the will and the um, uh, material resources each country has to make that happen. I mean, I could see a scenario where we have Olympic trials early and those that have already qualified are able to go to, let's say, Colorado Springs and be quarantined for not just two weeks, but for a month where they train there. Then they get on private jets and they fly to Tokyo and they're housed in major ships and they're just quarantined all the way to the venue. I think there's a way to do it for the athletes, but how do you do it for the spectators and how do you do? How do you bring all those people into a country where we've only had a minimal amount of deaths compared to us? And I think the spectator issue is is uh, very important, and the fan issue because they're the ones that are going to bring in a lot of the revenue. Um, will we have an events right now where there's no spectators? I saw something on um, on television the other day where they put up those big screens like Zoom, and uh, they had fans. Uh, virtually cheering uh, the, the teams on in the field of play with these big screens around the venue. Uh, I think that from a broadcaster's point of view, and this has happened before, you have your broadcasters not travel to Tokyo. You have the, the, the uh, international broadcast booth, uh, uh, comp, uh, broadcast uh, system, uh, send pictures back to the to venues in the different countries, and you have your announcers sitting in a studio calling the races and adding color. I think that'll take a lot out of it because I think the up close and personal look at the Olympics and those personal stories is what always grabs us. But um, I mean, I've been trying to imagine all these different scenarios. We've had ships house uh, sponsors and athletes before, uh, who knows? Uh, and and, and is, is the organizing committee looking at it that way? Are the leaders within the IOC looking at those scenarios? 
I, I bet they probably are. But I think that that's something that, um, you know, those are feasible options. But again, if you, you don't have the wealth to, to sequester your athletes and, and stage them in an, in an isolated environment and transport them that way, then is it an even playing field? Because there's countries that can't afford that. And Shen, Tokyo organizers must be worried to think that the Olympic Village designed pre-corona is no longer big enough, no longer has enough room to adequately keep athletes from contaminating each other, that they can't put four or six athletes in an apartment anymore, um, or that the main press center might have to be redesigned because journalists can't work elbow to elbow in large indoor spaces. Uh, those kinds of those kinds of issues, I think, are are, are going to come up if they're going to go ahead and have the games next year. Yes, definitely, and uh, it's quite an irony that um, IOC or the president Thomas Bach always talk about Olympic Village as the heart of Olympic movement That's and the Olympic it's Games, it's and now the village has the biggest risk. Um, to have the clusters of uh, infections. So um, I'm quite sure the organizing committee will find and, you know, discuss and study the measures to avoid um, infections and, uh, you know, the spread, spread of the virus. But um, it's a really difficult question to solve. And... Um, I don't know how, how they come. Yeah, it's too late to build another Olympic village. It's too late to build anything else. I mean, construction is essentially over in Tokyo, isn't it, Shin? Yeah, exactly. And uh, right after when the you know postponement was decided, we first spoke about if the village is would be available after one year time. And uh, of course, they are going to be sold as a private apartment. But... Um, and already it was already in the process of selling them to the public, but fortunately that number was not very big. So I think they kind of held uh, they, what they have, and uh, the village is, is hopefully available by the time of the games. But now, even if it's available, uh, you might not be able to use it at all. I mean, you might not be able to accommodate all the athletes there. So it's uh, quite a contradiction. <clears throat> the curtailment of travel um, has really played a big impact on the way people in the Olympic family conduct their business. Uh, travel would, was second nature, whether it's going across country or around the world. People would just hop on the plane and go to a meeting or go to a sports event, but uh, that's just not happening. And it doesn't seem like it's happening even this year. Uh, the, what would have been the big Olympic meeting of the two big Olympic meetings of the year, the IOC session, not going to happen in, 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 in a, in a regular way. Uh, the association of national Olympic committees uh, decided not to have its annual session, annual, assembly in 
It was going to be in, in South Korea in at the end of the year. Um, it's just going to change forever the way the IOC and the Olympic movement conduct its business. Where are we, are we moving into a, just a, a different era? I, th I think so, Ed. I think, um, you know, this, this experience of, of doing everything remotely or virtually and zoom meetings and, and the like is going to become the norm for a lot of organizations and, and a lot of, a lot of, uh, people uh, will will be doing this, you know, uh, regularly now. And uh, the IOC, this is going to sort of be an interesting test case when they have their session on July seventeenth uh, um, by by you know online and uh, how how it works. It's in rather the session usually, as you know, lasts three days and it's full of a lot of reports and not everyone's listening and a lot of dragging on and on and only a few key decisions made. Maybe this will be a way to streamline that whole process to. To, to, to focus uh, the, on the real matters at hand and people can get their documents in advance. They can read, you know, they don't need to have someone read them to them uh, over, over a long day and long afternoon. And I think um, it'll be interesting to see how this session works and uh, they can make their votes. If the votes are secure and no one's hacking into the system, which can't be ruled out obviously these days, um, that it may be uh, a way a way forward. And I think you'll see a lot less commission meetings being held over the, all over the world and people traveling uh, willy-nilly and spending getting a lot of per DMs. And I, I think this will maybe refocus uh, the mind on uh, how to do things differently in, in the future. It might, it might just be that the leverage to do what needs to be done anyway, to, to streamline the system, because there's, there's so much politics involved in this and so much, um, you know, uh, all I can say is politics. Uh, the session, the IOC really gave the executive board all the decision-making uh, power and that's a very small group. I mean, if you look at the movement every four years, you do have commissions that are essential, uh, like the uh, oversight commission for the organizing committee. That's an essential commission to travel. Um, and then you have all the unspoken good work that the IOC does through its solidarity programs, which they never get enough credit for, and the divvying up of money to the different National Olympic Committees and federations and, and research. Uh, research projects like they've done with gender and the coverage of the games and all those things. But um, maybe this will just give the, the movement, the, uh, the breathing room, and again, the leverage to do what really should have been done uh, to cut the fat. Uh, I mean, uh, and also I think as far as the broadcasters, I think they're gonna think of different ways they can cut costs as well. But again, you know, the, the, the joy of the Olympics is the gathering of the world. And as an athlete who was in Tokyo in 1964 that stayed at a converted, uh, I think it was an army base and walked to the most incredible venues ever. I look at Tokyo as uh, was really sophisticated the games. Um, you know, they were able to bring in technology for the first time, the games were live. Uh, my fondest memories, yes, I'm glad I won my gold medals, but was that Olympic Village, getting back to that discussion and meeting people like, uh, you know, Bill Bradley, who went on to become a senator. I had dinner with him every night and who would know years later, I'd be working in the Senate on the Amateur Sports Act and Title IX, which was about education and, and coming up with federal legislation that discriminated, uh, that outlawed 
discrimination on the basis of sex, which opened the door for women athletes in the US to get scholarships and do what they've done. But I met him at the Olympics. Um, I met Billy Mills, the second ever um, Native American to win a gold medal, who was a Marine who spent his life working in inner cities. And we're talking about what's going on now. I worked with him in something called Operation Champ, and then he devoted his life to Native Americans. Uh, you know, on and on and on with these wonderful relationships. Uh, I met uh, Jürgen Schroeder, who helped organize the Munich Games at the opening ceremony when it was misty. And he came over and threw his raincoat on me. And uh, because it was, uh, it was starting to get, you know, misty. And we became friends. We're still friends. We worked in Baden-Baden together to set up the first Athletes Commission uh, of the IOC and Bach was one of our speakers as was Sebastian Coe. So, you know, that village is the heart and soul as Shin mentioned of the games. Uh, and that's why I think all of us have stayed involved because it's not just the fastest and the most powerful, it's that gathering of humanity that more than ever gives us hope that we, you know, this world can gather together every two years for something special. And the burdens on the Olympic, uh, movement are immense, whether they're political, um, as we've seen with boycotts uh, or the tragedy in 72, but they've been resilient. And I think this group, you know, we all want to save this uh, important gathering. I don't know what it's going to look like in the future, but the discussions are beginning. And I think this gives us time to pause and, and look at the future in a different way. Donna, you are the real expert about the Tokyo Olympics because you're the only one of the four of us who have actually been to a Tokyo Olympics. Um, you went there as a teenager. I think you said you've been there. You, you visited Japan two times prior to actually going there for the Olympics in 64. Uh, you've been to Tokyo recently, since then. What was it like in Tokyo in 1964? compared to Tokyo of today? I want to go back to 1961 when I went to Tokyo as a 14-year-old with uh, some high school uh, swimmers. And Tokyo was very, uh, had a lot of foresight in having us come and visit the whole country uh, because they wanted to advance uh, the games like you would a political campaign. And uh, we went to all these incredible villages. We'd go to villages where there was a 25-meter pool and next to it was a rice paddy. And the country was emerging after World War II. Uh, when I first went in 1961, there was a two-lane road from the airport to downtown Tokyo. And the only, you know, big hotel was the Imperial Palace Hotel. Uh, I had a lot of, we had a lot of fun because this was not a competitive tour. This was a demonstration tour to, to motivate uh, young kids to get them involved in the movement, to think about their health. Um, swimming was a great popular sport in Tokyo because in 1956, uh, Japan had done well in the games. The U.S. women had only won one gold medal. Um, Sato Tanaka was a, a backstroker that I dueled with later when I went back to Tokyo. Uh, but uh, my job was to talk to the students um, and I also was used to race against uh, relays of four young boys in the individual medley. And I didn't lose any of those races. So I don't know what it did for their egos, <laughs> either motivated them or did, or they didn't want to swim anymore. But uh, I left Tokyo. I left Japan as we traveled all over. And for, you know, the years leading up to the Olympics, I would get fan mail. 
Uh, when I went back to the games, uh, there would be students lined up uh, very deep leading into the uh, Olympic venue that was state of the art. Uh, the swimming venue was incredible. It, they built it so it could uh, be converted into an ice rink later on. So they had a lot of vision. And I and the basketball arena was right next to this swimming arena. And I used to kid Bill Bradley about how much bigger our arena was than, than his because, you know, Bill went on to play for the Knicks and was a senator. Um, it was such a wonderful experience. And for me, that trip in 61 uh, deepened my love for sport and for the Olympics because I had a chance to see the whole culture. We stayed in uh, sacred grounds. We slept under mosquito nets. Uh, we visited the Shinto, palace, Shinto shrines. Uh, we traveled by uh, rail around the country and by bus. Uh, we were always given uh, such respect and gifts. I still have them. Uh, but it was, it was about the best part of sport, which was learning about the culture and meeting the people. And then to go back, in 63 for a competition, all of a sudden there was a super highway from the airport to downtown. There were hotels being rebuilt. Uh, and then years later I went back and of course Tokyo was totally different as is the world. But uh, I just remember how clean everything was and how, uh, how endearing and hospitable uh, the people were. My father uh, was a rower and might have gone to the 1940 Olympics. There's never a guarantee, but he was in the best eights team in rowing in 1939. And, uh, you know, he, he was a paratrooper in World War II. And here he was staying with a Japanese family 24 years after the war, uh, being hosted because uh, my parents couldn't afford to go to the, my first Olympics and they couldn't afford to stay in a hotel. But the Japanese had created this whole uh, network of uh, families that wanted to welcome people into their homes. So to me, that was what I left the Olympics with, was I, never, I always wanted to stay in the movement because of that experience. Yes, I won the gold medal, two gold medals, but that was, the, that was what I had taken with me my whole life. And that's why it's so hard to see you know, Japan dealing with this uh, Olympic issue and all the athletes who have trained a lifetime to um, realize his or her dream. Shin, Shin Kobayashi, uh, I'm not sure you were at the opening ceremonies or many <laughs> events of the Tokyo 1964 game. <laughs> but uh, from your perspective, um, um, what, what, do, what do people in Japan know about the 1964 Olympics? How are they regarded? How do you regard those 64 games in Japanese history? Um, I was born in 1964, but December. So you were so, an Olympic baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was born two months after, after the games was closed. Yeah. Uh, but my mother, uh, with my father, went to uh, Koshu Kaido Street, which was uh, on, the, on the marathon course, and she watched Abebe Bikira running. Abebe Bikira, yeah. Yeah, I should be hearing the footstep of Abebe uh, in my mother's womb. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, like that, many, very often uh, the, you know, the Tokyo Olympic Games in 1964 came up to our conversation and not only our conversation, but to everybody in that time. 
and uh, it's a uh, yes a very big event very big uh, thing happened in the japanese history and uh, of course the particularly all the generation uh look at look back as uh, happy memories i mean it's i think uh, kind of uh, gave uh, the Japanese sort of a self-confidence again. And um, it's, as Donna said, emerged from the World War II, um, the reconstruction of the city and the country. And also I think people felt that uh, Japan was uh, recognized as a country and uh, joined the, uh, the world family you know, society again. So it's a big turning point. And um, of course, it coincides with uh, uh, economy boost and a uh, lot of growth of the economy. So um, everything was sort of bright and happy and uh, going upward. And um, so I think uh, it's remembered. That's how, how the game's uh, remembered. And it's a different mood now, would you say, about the anticipation for Tokyo 2020? Well, yes, of course, uh, there was a big expectation, anticipation. Uh, people are looking forward to the games very much. But of course, it's more matured society. But so it's not like everybody's, you know, totally behind the games. Of course, yeah. there are people who are opposing to it. And, yeah. uh, and, and it's, a, it's a good thing. I mean, everybody has, a, has their opinions and uh, have right to say whatever he or she thinks. Um, but at the moment, uh, with all this problem with uh, virus and the postponement, now I think we are hearing more of the voices of the people who opposed you know, the game in the beginning rather than the people who wanted to have the game. Um, it's probably not really easy to, you know, say that the, the virtue or the, all the good things about games at the, this point of time, when a lot of people are suffering, um, not only from the virus, but also with, you know, the, um, the things that happen with the virus losing jobs and, uh, you know, all the misery. So it's um, <laughs> obviously it's a different atmosphere. Different, different time. <laughs> and, and, and it's, it, Donna, do you think this is going to make it difficult for the Olympics of the future, for Paris in 2024, for Los Angeles in 2028, even though they've been selected? Uh, we heard that from Australia that they've, put on hold for right now plans from uh, Queensland, the bid for the uh, 2032 well, Olympics? Well, first of all, I think the IOC was really smart to do two in a row, you know, because I think we were seeing cities fall out. Um, you know, I, I think it's a question of if we find a vaccine. Uh, it's a question of what the IOC does to streamline the movement. Um, I'm prejudiced about LA because LA saved the movement in 84, at least financially. Uh, we can debate about a lot of other issues, pol the political issues, but you know, they're gonna use a lot of the venues that are in already there. Um, they could probably 
move up the timeline four years and host him uh, when Paris is supposed to host him. Uh, we can't ever see it, foresee a, what the political future is going to bring. I think the big concern is Beijing and what's happening, what'll happen here with our election with Trump and the relationship between China and the U.S. Uh, I think there are a lot of us athletes are mobilizing to say no boycott. I hate that word. Uh, I, you know, I think the IOC is going to have to look at where they place games uh, about the vulnerabilities of, of uh, international politics. Um, and, you know, again, it's not only a question of if the games go on in Tokyo, but that five month uh, period between games. Although if you look in the past, we used to have the games winter and summer in the same year. So it's doable. It's just that it's so big now. Um, I mean, we're turning around the Titanic when it, when it has to do with uh, uh, transporting uh, uh, equipment and all that. Although all the equipment will be in Japan uh, and can be transported to Tokyo. I don't know if anybody's ever, I had the privilege in Rio of, of walking through the broadcast center and it's miles and miles and miles of uh, machinery and equipment and studios. Uh, and perhaps the broadcasters will decide, you know, we'll, we'll just let the Internal, International Broadcasting Corporation feed us all the pictures and our, our reporters will stay home in studios and that's the way we're going to cover it in the future. I think it'll take a lot of the personality out of it, but it may be the only option. Uh, but well, I, you know, I, I do believe, I, I do believe there's a will to keep, keep the games on track around the world. I think that maybe uh, the relationship the IOC has with the UN may be significant in that, you know, leaders around the world still want to see it uh, survive and thrive. And that's my hope that the international community uh, that's all about humanity and goodwill and all the things that the, the IOC espouses as far as the, the environment will all come together and one voice say we want the games to go on and we'll figure out how to do it. Steve Wilson, Rocky Road, still ahead for the IOC and the Olympics. Yes, I mean, it's been the last few years have been all about change, trying to change perceptions around the world about the, the benefits uh, of hosting the games that uh, cities should uh, should should uh, be uh, enthusiastic about holding the games that uh, they don't need to spend uh, as much as they used to that the new norm and uh, Olympic agenda 2020 will will change the landscape for for them and in, in a sense that their first test case was uh, for the 2026 uh, selection uh, in which Milan and Cortina uh, were were voted in to host the games of the winter games. Uh, I think that was uh, done in, in, a, in a different way, in a, in a better way, in a more streamlined way, a less expensive way, a simpler way. I think that that'll be the, that, that'll be the future uh, system uh, going forward with the host uh, host commissions looking, you know, uh, taking a uh, taking a more direct approach and finding the city that works uh, for the IOC and, and vice versa. And uh, you know, there's already cities in the running, you know as you know, for 2030 and 2032, those, those, those bids, so to speak, are on hold right now during the, during the pandemic. But I think uh, once things clear up, uh, there'll be plenty of time to find good host cities uh, for, for those games and, and those beyond. But uh, it's still a matter of, of changing public perception. It can't have, it's not happening overnight for, for the public, for politicians, for the world at large to understand that the Olympic games can be a benefit. They're not necessarily a drain on the, on the public uh, resources that uh, Olympic games are a good thing. 
So it'll still be a continuing battle to to, but uh, but one that they I think they can manage to win. Uh, finally, the uh, intertw- intertwining of sport and politics. Um, we're dealing in the United States right now with the aftermath of the the George Floyd um, incident in in Minneapolis and the the protests, uh, the the insurrection that's uh, broken out in the United States, but but athletes are starting to lend their voice to this, um, and it's spread to international attention as well. Um, you know, what is the role of the athlete? What is the, the viewpoint from other parts of the world about what's happening here in the United States? Um, Shin, do you see any impact uh, from, from these protests reaching Tokyo? Do people notice this? Is this anything that's going to shape how the Tokyo Olympics might go? Um, yes, I mean, this uh, incident and this uh, problem happening in the United States is uh, <clears throat> reported very much in Tokyo and in Japan too. And I think um, athletes are quite aware of what is happening. Uh, but as you know, Japanese athletes are not as outspoken as uh, many of the American or European athletes. So. Um, we don't see any much direct you know, responses from the athlete, but um, as today we saw a newspaper running a story, story of Liverpool soccer player, uh, you know, um, showing their solidarity with the, with the you know, fight against the discrimination. And uh, yes, I, I think people are getting aware and I think um, it's moving to a, well, I wouldn't say good, good direction, but yes, I mean, it's, it has an impact. And I think, uh, I don't know what will happen, happen, to talk, happen in the Tokyo games. Um, it's a difficult thing. Um, you know, the, the gesture on the podium, protest on the podium, that's something um, happened obviously in 1968, Mexico City Olympics. and. Uh, the athlete has to pay a big um, sacrifice for that. And uh, well, I don't know, the history might repeat itself, but USOPC is uh, paying a very, you know, um, sensitive, keen eyes on what the, how the athletes would behave at the Olympic Games. So yeah. it's, also, it's a very touchy, um, sensitive issue. Yeah, Donna, the... As as an as an athlete, what is what is their responsibility in terms of speaking out on issues of the day like this, getting involved in these protests? Is it is it something they should do? I think they should go with their heart. I, I don't think they should use the Olympic podium, uh, but they have social media, which we we didn't have in my day. I know after my Olympics, I worked with Operation Champ with Billy Mills, who won the 10,000 meter uh, at, in, in Tokyo, because the 60s were full of you know, unrest like this. And I spent my summers in inner city communities. And we had something called Operation Champ, where we went into inner city programs. And uh, we took football players that were known in the community and great athletes and work with the youth 
and we had flatbed trucks with pools. We opened fire hydrants. We had midnight basketball. I really think in the 60s, we had a lot of answers. It was about education. Um, it was about uh, outreach with productive programs. Um, it, was, it was a time of renewal and hope, and a lot of athletes were involved. And uh, I just wish that had continued. It became political because these programs were initiated in, in, under a democratic uh, administration. And, uh, you know, and, and when money was given out, there was some graft, so the programs were scrapped. But I think we had a real chance before pedestrian drugs and uh, building anger to do the right thing in our, in our communities. And athletes are speaking out. We had a women's soccer player speak out today in solidarity with uh, those that are protesting. I think most people don't want looting. I mean, you're punishing the people that are small business people that may be people of color. Many are that are losing their businesses at a time when we're losing so many jobs. And this is like a confluence of really a lot of pressures all at once. Uh, but I don't think the Olympic podium is a place to do it. I might say though, I was there in 68 and I understood why uh, our, our African-American athletes did protest because there was no voice, there was no social media, there was no other option for a voice, but um, they have the ability to express themselves through action, through contribution, through um, a dialogue on their social media. So it, it, we're in a different space right now. And Steve, despite the efforts of the IOC to try to keep politics at arm's length from, from the Olympics, I think we're heading into a, a time, an era when it's going to be hard to do with big causes like this uh, still going on across the world. Absolutely. In fact, uh, we should recall that it was only a few months ago uh, before uh, the pandemic uh, crisis uh, came to the world that uh, the IOC released the new guidelines on the uh, Rule 50, uh, which is the, the rules applying to athletes uh, uh, and prohibiting them from uh, using political uh, demonstrations uh, during the games. And I think even before this George Floyd, death, uh, this was going to be uh, something to watch carefully in Tokyo had the games gone ahead this year, because already last year we've had cases of U.S. athletes in different competitions of the Pan Am games, for example, uh, on, the, on the medal stand, uh, taking uh, making some gestures, political gestures. So this was already going to be something to watch uh, you know, this year. And now with the George Floyd, uh, the death of George Floyd, it only ratchets, ratchets up this possibility. And I think um, it's going to be uh, definitely uh, a controversial topic leading into the Tokyo Olympics next year as to what the athletes uh, can say, where they can say it, and how they can say it. And uh, they certainly have a lot more issues to to raise if they if they choose to do so so it will be a tr tricky course to to follow for for the season for the athletes we have yeah we have we have very interesting times ahead of us here and lots lots that has to happen before uh before we get to tokyo before we get to paris uh plenty of change in the air I want to thank uh, all of you for joining us uh, on this first edition of our Reporters Roundtable here on Around the Rings Radio. Donna Deverona, Steve Wilson, Shin Kobayashi, uh, great pleasure to talk to you and uh, look forward to getting together and 
chewing the things over that we uh, that we face every day in in our work here covering the Olympics. Thanks again to all of you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm your host, Ed Hula, reminding you to stay safe and stay calm. For more than 25 years, your best source of news about the Olympics is AroundTheRings.com. <laughs>